Hi everyone, I'm Sofia, the founder of Vona and a host of this podcast, Vona Talks. Vona is a consultancy and education platform with a focus on climate, gender, security and intersection between them. In this podcast, we bring unique and underrepresented as well as more known voices of diverse experts, activists and storytellers. Welcome back on Wanna Talks, a podcast on climate, gender and security. And today with me is a special guest because it's the first man who joins our podcast on climate, gender and security. And his name is Gabriel Nuker, who is a gender and peace building advisor at Conciliation Resources. I assumed your pronouns being a he, Gabriel, but can you please correct me if I'm wrong and also maybe briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, I generally go by he, him. And yeah, th- thanks a lot for having me. As you said, I'm a gender and peace building advisor uh, and I currently work with a London-based uh, peace building organization called Conciliation Resources. Um, so yeah, I, I mainly work towards the uh, meaningful inclusion of, of women, girls and other marginalized groups in peace and security initiatives. Um but I also uh, focus on identifying and addressing how social norms and power structures um, kind of shape and drive conflict and instability too. So that's that's me in a nutshell. Interesting. That's why you are here. And we will talk a bit more about your work and specificities of what you have been doing for the past few years a bit later. Um, but before we go there, I want to hear your story. I want to hear where you come from, what brought you to where you are today and to the work that you have been doing and especially maybe connecting it a bit to the fact that you're a man working on climate gender security again you are the first guest here not because it was not because I kind of was discriminating men but I guess it's because it was really hard to find a man who works on the topic and who is an expert and wants and is ready to talk so I want to hear how come you started working on these topics where does it start and what brought you to to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I, I really wouldn't suppose my life story has a huge amount of interest for, for your listeners. But um, I suppose my journey to the work on gender, climate uh, and conflict started uh, during my undergraduate degree where I was studying psychology. I became um, particularly interested in peace building. And there was a, there was a specific question which um, maybe now feels a little bit naive to me, but that's that's where I was. Uh, and that question is, why do people and groups involved in conflict um, often appear from the outside to make decisions that go against their long-term interests? Um, what are the kind of psychological and sociological processes that that play out to, to make it so that cycles of conflict appear so strong and that opportunities for peace feel so difficult um, to, to live out? So kind of that's what brought me into peace building eventually. And after starting my career there and doing some really inspiring um, work in Lebanon, I moved to Belfast to do my postgraduate degree uh, in peace and conflict studies. And I also did some some community mediation, some facilitation initiatives all around the kind of the legacy of the troubles, which is the conflict in, in Northern Ireland. And while it was, it was while I was there that the, the gender angle really uh, came into my work and a couple of things brought that up for me um, really and the first was 
when the Me Too movement kind of exploded into the public consciousness, um, it, it, it definitely, you know, it blipped onto my radar. And as a, as a naive 26-year-old man, I remember being really shocked and outraged at the experiences that I was hearing were so common uh, for, for women all, all around the world. So that was, um, I feel a bit embarrassed to say, it was a real uh, part of a waking up moment for me. And then at the same time, as I was studying conflict, I was becoming increasingly struck by the role that masculinity seemed to play everywhere in peace and conflict dynamics. So um, the way in which narratives around masculinity, um, like norms and expectations of what it is to be a man, seem to be consistently used to recruit young, often socially marginalized men into violent groups, um, and to and also to justify lots of different types of militarized intervention more broadly. So I knew I wanted to bring that into my work as well. So it was across that year that I I realized um, that I wanted to bring gender into my peace building work. And for me, it didn't really seem like an optional add-on, uh, but something that I really wanted to place uh, front and center. Um, sorry, the story is a bit longer than I expected, but um, the climate part is a bit more simple, really kind of uh, some years ago, I became more aware of the climate and biodiversity crisis and became involved in some different um, activist things around it. And that became a really big part of my life outside my career. And I've been very keen since to bring it into the work. And I'm really fortunate that there are some excellent colleagues and partners at Conciliation Resources that share that commitment to bringing together uh, gender, climate and conflict that have made that work possible. Awesome. I love that. And I think I kind of share your story with climate part because I also just by observing what's happening around the world felt like by now I just cannot ignore climate aspect in my work. So we need to kind of mainstream climate throughout everything we do. But the part on masculinities, I think is extra interesting because it was just recently that I was discussing with my colleagues who also work in gender area that there is, I mean, there is a lack of we have a lack of men in this area. We do not engage men enough, and especially the discussions on masculinities. So it's very interesting to hear that you kind of early enough in your career and life have experienced and understood how important it is and also understood that you want to be part of those who try to change it and try to understand and get involved. Um, I would want to hear more about your understanding of this connection between climate, gender, and security. And maybe if we could start by explaining what is gender to you, maybe going a bit more into depths of masculinities as well, and then trying to explain the, the nexus between between the three, since you have been working on this for a while already. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, the way that um, we, we approach gender at Conciliation Resources really uh, comes from a foundational assumption that uh, gender is a kind of a socially constructed, um, it's, it's a social construction. So that means we differentiate it from, from sex. And so what we mean when we talk about gender are um, generally the kind of um, masculinities and femininities that are commonly ascribed to either men or women. Um, so their social norms, their social expectations, their, their pressures, their constraints, it really is the power dynamics that shape um, opportunities and expectations and pressures for different people. Um, so we talk about masculinities and femininities a lot. And where possible within our conflict contexts, um, we also talk about different forms of um, sexuality and gender identity that don't 
uh, ascribe to those binaries and um, allow people to occupy the space, uh, other spaces uh, of sexual orientation and gender identity and diversity that sometimes are uh, not allowed to fit into that. So that's that's what we sort of uh, think about in terms of gender. And we also accept uh, and recognise that it's really different in different contexts, kind of what, what might be normalised within my context in London um, will certainly be different from some of the contexts where we work um, around the world. It, it intersects with lots of other identities and, and cultures and are expressed in lots of different ways. Um, and that's really important to, to recognise that diversity as well and that contextualization. Um, so, I mean, what can I say about how they, they intersect with, um, how gender intersects with uh, the climate crisis and, and conflict? Um I would say that you know they intersect in many many ways and they form a connected system. So uh, that's that each a change in each kind of area um, can occur by changes in the others. So they're part of a networked system, if you like. Um, and from our research, we've seen that the, the climate crisis can shape gender and social inequality by exacerbating existing vulnerabilities. Uh, we see that women, indigenous peoples gender and sexual minorities or people living with disabilities, they're often the most kind of susceptible and vulnerable to climate change. Um, we also see that the climate crisis can shape conflict, you know, it can reduce access to, to natural resources or it can increase competition for those resources like fertile land and water. Um, and equally, climate shocks can, can kind of break down um, delivery of, of governance systems um, and trigger further kind of escalation in violence uh, as well and suffering um and there's that second a second sort of way a second bubble if you like how does uh, gender inequality shape the the other two well gender equality um can can shape the climate crisis by um actually kind of blocking uh, the likelihood of sustainable um climate action there's lots of actual evidence out there that suggests that countries with with high levels of gender inequality are more vulnerable to climate change. And I think that will come up a little bit maybe throughout the course of our conversation. Um, and, you know, gender and social inequality also shapes conflict dynamics a little bit, as I said, about, you know, forming norms and expectations that can encourage men and women to engage in conflict or create discourses that invoke or perpetrate uh, kind of violence. And that last bubble, really, how does conflict shape the other two? Well, Conflict uh, can shape the climate crisis by damaging natural resource management systems, um, uprooting communities, weakening kind of the resilience of people and communities. Um, and then conflict can also shape um, gender and social inequality because um, there are very different gendered effects. So the mortality burden generally falls disproportionately on men, uh, but women really frequently face disproportionate displacement and heightened levels of, of labour responsibilities and intergenerational poverty as a result, as well as kind of giving rise to, to heightened rates of sexual and gender-based violence and, and the weaponizing of that. So uh, it's, all, it's all very interconnected. And our main takeaway message is that they are connected and that um, action addressing each of these challenges has the potential to support or undermine progress um, in the other areas. Yeah, thank you for finalizing it in the end and kind of summarizing because I feel like 
by listening, even I was getting a bit confused sometimes. And I feel it is it is the confusion with, with the triple nexus that it is hard to kind of see. On the one hand, it's very nuanced and it's very detailed. And if you do not go into detail, as you rightly said in the end, it can exacerbate or vice versa, ideally support the, the other area. If we talk about climate or environment and then conflict resolution, peace building activities and so on. But I feel like it will be probably easier to understand if we discuss concrete examples, because, um, I mean, why did I invite you to this podcast? It's also because we met just a few weeks ago um, at an event in Brussels that was organized around the topic of the triple nexus around gender, climate and security, which doesn't really happen in our circle. So therefore, I was particularly surprised and um, interested in the report that you have been presenting on gender, cultural identity, conflict, and climate change. So you add even one more topic on, on cultural identity to make this nexus even more complex. So could you share a bit more about the report that you wrote and the findings that you have been exploring and already discussing at the, a few weeks ago? Uh, yes, I'll be pleased to talk about it a bit more. Thank you. Yeah, um, I co-produced the report across um, 2023 alongside a good colleague of mine at uh, conciliation Resources, Amy Dwyer. And it's the result of um, analysis workshops and interviews um, and collaboration with community members, authorities, uh, climate change and gender specialists um, that we carried out in, in Kampala, in Uganda, in Islamabad, in Pakistan, and in Mindanao, in the Philippines. Um, and on all three contexts, we've got partners that are really interested in testing out more integrated approaches to these connected challenges. So yeah, what does what does the research do? Well, the research examines how how gender and cultural norms, relationships, and power structures um, really shape how different people experience the impacts of climate change, which you know then obviously then goes on to shape the types of responses that they adopt, um, and then further down the chain, those responses then shape conflict. So that was the chain of events we looked at, um, and our focus really came from our observation that current approaches to analysing and working on gender, climate and conflict, they predominantly look at um, women and girls as exposure and vulnerability to climate change, which is really important. And it's it's a real story and it's really happening and it needs addressing. But there's a real missing piece, which is often how gender norms are also a key variable that can help us better understand how climate change contributes to conflict. And a the, a key ambition of our work was to analyze in what ways gender and other forms of social inequality in the context of, ch of climate change drive conflict, which obviously we seek as an organization to, to transform as part of more effective peace building responses. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this brief overview. But I would still want to go a bit more in depth because you just mentioned a few regions that you have been uh, covering with the report. Maybe there are some anecdote stories that you could share from the ground as you were, I'm pretty sure, exploring what was happening there and then probably traveling there as well and talking to people on the ground. It would be really interesting to know some of those examples. Yeah, of course. So yes, we we um, we traveled to, uh, to uh, Kampala and we traveled to Islamabad and worked there and we collaborated with um, partners uh, in Mindanao where they conducted their research. So um, we, we met some fascinating people and I think sharing some of our top line findings, I think, uh, might be an interesting way of then providing some of the stories 
and experience that were shared with us as part of that and bring them to life and um, hopefully help understand what's really going on in this uh, in this complicated uh, nexus. So our first major finding was that gender and cultural expectations um, uh, and power systems, um, they really influence how people experience climate change. So we got a richer picture of that. Um, and our research showed, you know, how climate change is compounding pre-existing uh, power inequalities with particular severe consequences for people who faced multiple forms of exclusion, uh, whether that was women across all contexts, people with disabilities in all contexts, and, and the same for LGBTQIA plus peoples. But a really key finding was also that we saw how gender roles were becoming much harder to, to fulfill during the, uh, during the effect of climate change. Um, and that was making it much more difficult for communities and community members to maintain and develop their cultural identities, which was having um, you know, really, signe- uh, really severe psychological and psychosocial effects um, around and mental health effects. So in Karamoja, in Uganda, um, participants were explaining that climate change is leading to um, increasingly unpredictable droughts, increasingly unpredictable flooding in the region. And that means that that's decreasing their access to safe and fertile land for grazing cattle, which is a very, very, very key issue for these pastoralist communities, communities that um, herd cattle. So this this resulted in uh, increased livestock mortality and food insecurity. And that meant that these uh, increasing numbers of these pastoralist communities are struggling to to ensure their their basic survival, really, to to guarantee their food needs. And also, they're really struggling to live according to their uh, traditional identities and practices because cattle aren't just a food source. They are an irreplaceable um, cultural currency used to facilitate um, some of the most important events within the culture, some of the most important celebrations and weddings and uh, rites of passage. Uh, And because of that, shortage of cattle, young men were unable to pay the dowry price to young women's families, which is traditionally paid in cattle. And it keeps them both locked. Um, it was keeping lots of young people um, locked in a state of youthhood rather than um, progressing through traditional respectable um, adult roles. And that was having knock-on effects. Older community members' roles as facilitators and custodians um, of these traditions and rights were being compromised. So there was there was basic survival uh, and food insecurity, and there was a there was a threat to the ongoing culture of a lot of these um, a lot of these communities. Um, and what I've described just just now are some of the gendered experiences. Um, and as I was saying before, we wanted to then un- uh, identify and explore how those different gendered experiences were changing gendered responses. Um, and by that, I mean um, gendered responses being the kind of uh, the responses that different actors in a conflict system might make that be, can be traced back to their um, gender and cultural norms and expectations. Um, and um, this really came out as a key finding that gendered responses are helping us clarify some of the additional links between climate change and conflict. And that came out at two levels. Um, that first level is around uh, community dynamics. And we saw how gendered responses uh, were driving and escalating violence at that level. Um, and to keep building on this answer, uh, this example of, uh, of the pastoralist communities in Karamoja, 
as they were increasingly struggling to live according to their traditional identities, um, masculine and high-risk coping strategies were, were becoming more activated in response to climate change, which are then further driving tensions and violence at the level. Um, against this, this backdrop of pastoralist communities increasingly struggle, struggling to ensure their, their basic continued survival, um, the, the, the participants and partners in, on the ground were describing how different groups in the community were guiding incentivizing and sometimes shaming young men into engaging with uh, the preeminent conflict dynamic in the region, which is armed uh, intercommunal cattle theft and raiding. It's dangerous. And we've heard from many of the community members that it's actually a traumatizing thing to perpetuate and let alone be exposed to. Um, But this is under those conditions, one of the only routes left for men to deliver on their responsibilities as providers for multiple households and protectors of those pastoralist values. I love that the approach to gender that you're applying is quite intersectional and what you're saying. So this culture identity, basically, I feel like perfectly depicts how intersectional the whole approach should be. And we shouldn't only look at men and women when we talk about climate change and conflict resolution, but we also should go a bit more into depth, as you said, depending where the people come from, but also maybe going into more in depth than where they come from, but actually from the region, depending on the culture, traditions, norms, expectations, opportunities that they are exposed to. So I think that this is a very nuanced and and very, I don't know, I feel like this story really, really shows that what we are doing matters kind of, and or and if we do it wrong, then the consequences could be something that a lot of generations ahead of us will feel anyhow. And in addition to the stories from the ground, do you have any other ideas on how climate change could link to the gender responses and the conflict at the governmental level as well? Yeah, you're right. Thanks for um, bringing that that up. Um, yeah, we do. That was a really major finding. So at the government level, we, we um, analyzed how gender dynamics in government responses to climate change are shaping and often exacerbating conflict risks. So it's not just a community level dynamic. Um, at the governmental level, we saw how um, traditionally masculine norms and roles within government climate decision making can escalate conflict and uh, exclude the perspectives of women. Um, I think this is probably best um, illustrated in our research uh, in the case of the, the Indus Water Treaty, which is a, a critical uh, mechanism uh, for, for managing competition over water usage and uh, hydro energy and the construction of dams between India and Pakistan. So participants um, and analysts in our um, participatory analysis workshops identified how both countries are increasingly clashing over this water management treaty using dialogue and negotiation techniques, um, which the participants were describing as as hyper-masculine, muscular, oppositional and combative. Um, So they were outlining how the rhetoric um, by political leadership on these issues and the intergovernmental engagement can be characterized in ways that are predominantly associated within the contexts um, with dominant masculine norms, expectations and and modes of engagement in the in the wider context. Um, You know, strength, courage, control, uh, those kind of traits really characterizing the nature of of discourse on that matter. And this... um, this was then, uh, as we were informed by the participants, this was then creating really strict parameters for 
how interactions on cross-border climate change engagement are commonly conducted, which was playing a, a significant role in um, marginalising women as, as legitimate actors within these spaces, and also um, provoking um, increased levels of intergovernment uh, tension over water management in the region. So I think that's a really powerful example about how the, the gender norms and gender dynamics within government responses to climate change um, can exclude people, can inhibit effective action, and how those are, are a critical issue to deal with. And these are just some of the stories about how gender features within that nexus um, that, that were shared with us through our, uh, through our analysis and our partners' experiences. Very interesting. I feel like we tend to look at masculinities when we talk about security more because, I mean, military security is often the topic or conflict is often the topics that are most associated with masculinities. Um, rather than climate change, I don't feel like the discussion on climate change and responses to climate change are often linked to traditional norms of masculinities and what is assumed to be and how do we kind of yeah, try to tackle the problem. So I think that it's indeed a very nuanced story that also shows us why in the end, again, it is very important to have this intersectional gender approach to all the responses that we are coming up around the areas of climate change, but also security and conflict resolution. Um, so we discussed a lot of these kind of connections between climate, gender, security, a lot of problems that do exist there. Um, but the podcast also tries to focus a bit on providing hope to those who listen, to provide with some ideas and thoughts maybe on how to solve these problems and maybe with some recommendations to what people can take out of, out of our story and out of our speeches here and see that if there is something that they can apply in their everyday lives already or maybe at the program policy levels. So if you have any ideas on that front, it would be very useful as well to listen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, perhaps I'll divide those into two two sections, really, kind of one, um, which was around the kind of solutions that we put forward in our report. And that might more focus on uh, gender and peace building specialists, peace and security specialists, climate security specialists, um, or even some donors. And then that last part around if there are people uh, in your audience who have different roles, I still think there's really important things to learn from this. So, um but I think hope is something I'll pick up on as well. Um, engaging in, in work across these three different intersecting priority areas, um, I've been really struck by how concrete some of the opportunities posed by that joined up approach are. Um, so I think that was some really good news is that um, combining them is a hopeful um, uh, initiative as well. So solutions and recommendations, that's the big question. And for us, we focused on um, kind of a key question of how can donors, how can governments, how can peace building practitioners respond to these unconnected challenges? Um, and the first thing I wanted to, to highlight is that there's a, a need to unlock a much more effective and sustainable climate action by actually addressing underlying gender and social inequalities and fragility. Um, it's really important that climate practitioners and policymakers recognize the need to address underlying social conditions, inequalities, and vulnerabilities that that undermine communities' um, adaptive capacity, which is, you know, their capacity to plan and respond well and safely to climate change. Um, there's lots of evidence that communities with more collective empowerment, more, more inclusive decision-making and, and better distribution of uh, access to resources, they are the communities that are better able to mitigate 
and adapt to the effect of climate change. So that's really important. Um, I think the second real kind of solution uh, and the thing that we want to happen is for for people working in peace building, in climate security and and donors looking to support that, that action is that they should leverage climate change initiatives as an entry point for peace building um, and including gender equality kind of outcomes as well. Um, so that comes from the, the, the finding that, uh, that, that climate responses have the potential to exacerbate, uh, to make uh, existing inequalities much worse, but they also provide a really unique uh, opportunity for climate action to contribute towards transforming conflict uh, and advancing gender and social inequality. And that's because climate change, everywhere we went and everywhere we spoke to climate change uh, by actors in, in conflict-affected contexts was commonly understood as a preeminent threat to, to livelihoods, to cultural identity, to human security. Um, and it's understood as requiring unique levels of collaboration um, within communities and between communities and with authorities and across borders. So there is that opportunity that um, that work on climate change poses for also contributing to peace building um, and gender equality outcomes as well. It's critical that is um, that is not left out. And I'll quickly mention a kind of third and final recommendation that I'll share that we're really keen to emphasize. And that is the, uh, that's the need to advance gender and culturally responsive climate action uh, within leadership at governmental and multilateral levels. So that comes on, that, that builds on that story that I was telling about kind of governmental gendered responses. So um, as I was describing, those responses themselves are gendered and they can undermine diverse gender and cultural needs um, and also play a role in, in furthering marginalization. So what this recommendation really means is that we need to prioritize shifting decision-making uh, leadership cultures, which currently define and limit that. And practically, practically that's going to mean working with, with government bodies, uh, with responsibilities for climate decision-making uh, in conflict-affected contexts to, to undertake initiatives that are about um, helping them understand and supporting them to strategically address um, norms and organizational cultures that inhibit uh, inclusive and uh, effective climate response uh, development, really. Thank you. Thank you for providing us a bit of the hope and with some concrete examples to the solutions and recommendations that, I, that you provided. So I hear from you, the first one was kind of no climate justice without gender justice. So we, we cannot have one without the other one and vice versa. The second one that I hear, despite the fact that climate change is the biggest global challenge that we have in today's world, probably, it is also provide us with a lot of opportunities on how we can sort the problems that have been there already for decades before. And here we talk about conflict, but also the gender part. And the third, we still would have to have to work with the top of our, I mean, it's obvious, I guess, but it, probably the third one seems to me the hardest yeah, which is probably funny because the previous two are kind of kind of global and we won't be able to sort, sort it on our own. But somehow approaching leadership always is one of the hardest parts. Um, and yet something that I know a lot of organizations work a lot. Um, I know that gender responsive leadership and so on is also what the EU and then Global North type of organizations are working for. And they're also by far not perfect uh, on those cases, yet to speak about the conflict-affected areas um, around the world, including 
also in Europe, but also beyond. So I think that's a lot of work ahead of us, but I'm happy that we, we are a community there that is talking about these problems and mentioning them and speaking about them. So, and I hear from you that you have some solutions and programs within your organization that also do work with governments and leadership as well in order on how to make them a bit more aware and kind of, yeah, to, to, to apply those changes and those thoughts in their work and the policy making and just the way that they do things on their everyday life. Mm. No, you're, that, I could not have uh, imagined a more perfect summary of, of the points that I was trying to make. And you're absolutely right. I think there's uh, both on the EU side and uh, within other institutions, there's an increasing recognition that if we want to get to where we need to go to, um, we need to seriously examine and uh, deliberately construct leadership cultures that, that allow us to get there. Um, yeah, so I'll fully back that point as well. Thank you. Thank you for your time and for sharing with us your story and your vision on climate, gender, security and access, as well as with providing with very detailed, nuanced stories. I feel like that was one of the most valuable parts of this podcast episode as well, to hear those stories from the ground, which are indeed very unique. Um, do you have any last message that you want to share with with our audience? Yeah, you know, well, first, just a huge thank you to you for, for having uh, me on, on here to talk about our findings and providing me with a chance to discuss how Conciliation Resources and our partners are taking our first significant steps into working on gender, climate and conflict in a, a more joined up and more coherent way. For us, the work is going to be ongoing. Uh, so please follow us on our social media channels and our website, um, all that jazz. Um, but perhaps my last word for your listeners can be on that uh, previous question you made around hopes or, or invitations. And um, maybe it can be a call to action or an invitation for exploration, because for, for us at Conciliation Resources, at the inception, at the start of this project, uh, integrating an analysis of gender and power into our work on climate and conflict it felt complicated and it felt intimidating. Um, and it proved for us actually to be a really fruitful initiative that, as I said, has its open doors and opportunities to, to think and do things differently and more inclusively. Um, so my invitation to your listeners, um, if they're not already doing so, is to um, carve out some space to consider how gender, culture and power feature in your work. Um, you know, whether you're organizing within communities, whether you're developing policies within institutions, or perhaps you're simply working as part of a team with a different focus, can you find time to ask yourself what gender and power dynamics are at play here? And how might addressing any of these unequal power relations contribute to, to strengthening the changes that you want to see in your work? Uh, for us, that's proved really fruitful. And um, so I'm always keen to, to see if other people can, can find uh, new opportunities in doing that within their work. Beautiful. I love it. I think that this is also one of the questions that I usually do ask people when I do different types of trainings and research and so on. And uh, I think a spoiler would be that it's not going to be an easy question to ask and there are no easy solutions. And uh, your report, among many other reports, also shows how complex the dynamics are. And I think I, I do remember that you have this like scheme when you, where you try to connect and it shows also the complexity. But I feel like as you said, that it gives back quite a lot of understanding and quite a lot of nuances that make you prevent maybe some issues and problems that might appear in future and also shows you some details like why 
going into depths of some cultural identities or other types of identities is indeed very, very important in the work that you do on a daily basis. And whether it is at the community level or in some small projects, or we talk indeed about the global policies, I feel like everyone would be able to find the connection there. So thank you very much for this inspirational and not dif- not easy, difficult. Um, but I feel like this is this has to be done and these questions should be asked earlier or later, depending where we work and what we do. Thank you again, Gabriel, for your time and for your insights. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was it for this episode. Now we would love to hear from you. Let us know who should be our next guest. Maybe it's you? To get engaged, go to our website, buona.international where you will find a box to share with us your ideas and requests regarding next episodes. Also, subscribe to our monthly newsletter and follow us on social media. Talk soon!